This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. NVIDIA intros new GPU reference platform. And Intel unveils Optane memory modules. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with Top500.org. I'm Addison Snell. That's Michael Feldman. Michael, This Week in HPC, we talked previously from the GPU Technology Conference about the NVIDIA platform, the DGX2, which was kind of a, an, an NVIDIA GPU super platform. Now they've unveiled this as a reference architecture, the HGX2. Right. This is something uh, unlike the DGX2, which was NVIDIA's own product. This is going to be a platform that other system builders can pick up and build basically their version of the DGX2 and sell to a, a much broader audience. And, uh, of course, if you recall, the, the DGX2 was 16 GPUs and basically a single box. Um, the, the secret sauce here was they had the NV switch, the NV link switches, which made all those 16 GPUs uh, appear to be a single GPU with all that memory, the local memory on those GPUs appear to be uh, as a single memory resource. So it was it was a way to get uh, a a large GPU resource connected to CPUs and have that available in in applications that that needed that sort of computational density like AI and and certain types of HPC workloads. Yeah, this is certainly a GPU heavy configuration with two CPUs connected over PCIe to 16 GPUs. You're now looking at an 8 to 1 GPU to CPU ratio, and there aren't a lot of HPC applications that are going to take advantage of it. The obvious target market for this is training on the AI side, which is an embarrassingly parallel application. The wild card here is that NVLink, which uh, essentially turns these GPUs into something like a NUMA or shared memory platform, where GPUs can read uh, data from memory on other GPUs. Now, the shared memory analogy isn't perfect. What really distinguished a shared memory platform like an SGI NUMA machine was that it ran one single operating system instance across the space. So you, you really had one kernel that spanned all of the different distributed nodes. It was distributed shared memory. In this case, you still have host CPUs that are running the operating system kernel. And in that sense, anything that's running in one kernel across the two CPUs spans all 16 GPUs. But really, it's not a perfect analogy because it's the GPUs that are communicating with each other, hosting the application memory, and those GPUs aren't what's running the operating system kernel. So it is a good metaphor. It's not a perfect metaphor, but in one sense, it's an 8 to 1 GPU to CPU ratio. In another sense, it's like one big GPU talking to two CPUs. Right, and I think that's that's the key to this whole thing. You don't really have to worry about the ratios. You have to worry about if your application has enough uh, computation to offload into a large GPU resource. Um, at the application level, it, it might not even know there's 16 GPUs out there. Um, it just needs uh, enough of the GPU resource to make this worth worthwhile. And certainly for, for AI training and things like that, um, that's sort of easy to envision for... For HPC, uh, there's a handful of applications that really run well on on GPUs uh, 
And those would be very applicable to something like this, I think. Um, but in a sense, this looks like mainly something that's going to be used uh, principally by AI training customers uh, rather than HPC customers. I think in the HPC space, this is going to be more of a niche architecture for, for that set. But I think we'll see some instances where, uh, where people do buy these things. We've got uh, a lot of system builders that, that say they're going to build systems out of these, including Lenovo and Supermicro. So it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility to see a, a fairly large HPC system built with this HGX2 uh, architecture. That's been our analysis as well, especially early in the sales process of this. This is predominantly a system that's not an, an efficient HPC node. It is an efficient node for anything that's embarrassingly parallel and uses a lot of GPUs. And right now that's training on the AI side. And I think we will see a certain amount of these going to hyperscale companies that want to do a lot of training for AI. But from an HPC perspective, it still looks a little bit more like a point product. Now that could change because really when you're talking about that heavy of a GPU resource, there's two, uh, there, there are fundamentally two challenges. One is, do you have an application that can take advantage of that much computational acceleration? And the other question has always been, can you decompose the application to take advantage of that? This HGX2, uh, reference architecture makes the second part of that simpler. There's not as much decomposition that needs to be done. You still have to program for acceleration, but now you're not additionally decomposing across multiple GPUs necessarily uh, if, if you can treat that as a single GPU resource. I think there are still limited applications that can take advantage on the HPC side of that much GPU horsepower currently. I think we will certainly see a certain number of academic, especially supercomputing centers, who will take a flyer on this and say, here's our big AI supercomputer because I can get a grant for AI these days, and then start testing what HPC applications can I run against this and get efficient acceleration. These things start out that way. It would, would this be how I would choose to build a GPU uh, accelerated supercomputer today if I wanted to be efficient for existing applications? No. I think there are other platforms that, that, uh, uh, that are more efficient today for this. But, you know, people building these and then starting to port applications over to them, that's how this kind of advancement happens. And, and I think they will place a certain number of them, and we may see more applications start getting more and more GPU-friendly. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and the other potential use case model for this is is since a lot of these are going to end up in in hyperscale clouds is for hpc users that that want to basically rent um, computational power in these clouds uh, there could be the software that that sort of even virtualizes uh this platform even a little bit more and you could you could borrow you know a, a piece of this for an hpc workload and you don't even have to worry about you know Doing all the all the legwork to, to to get it to run on a on a unified or a whole uh, monolithic uh, box, um, so there could be some of that. But like like Intersect 360 has noted on on many occasions, the the HPC cloud market is is still quite constrained. So that use case model is 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 not prevalent. 
Yeah, although it did have a huge breakout year last year, we are starting to see that high double-digit growth that we were start that we've been anticipating, and now that's coming into the market. But yeah, by the time you segment that all out into things that are SaaS, things that are GPU heavy, um, that's not going to be the reason that a hyperscale company is going to buy this, thinking, "Oh, I'm going to resell the cycles on this and make a ton of money." What makes this? Uh, economically feasible for a hyperscale company is if they need those GPUs for their own AI and training. And, and really, that's what we pegged this for as the, the dominant uh, application that it's chasing back when they announced the DGX2 at GTC. This is really more of a, an AI training platform than it is an HPC platform. Yeah, agreed. All right, Michael, also this week in HPC, something else that's new on the architecture side, we've been talking about non-volatile memory and in particular NVMe using a, a PCI Express, but now we're moving that all the way to NVM as Intel introduces these Optane DIMMs that are uh, DIMM slot cards that use non-volatile memory. Right. Uh, this, these are Intel's first non-volatile DIMMs using the uh, the Optane 3D X-Point technology. That's a that's that's news in itself. Now, these are not the only non-volatile DIMMs out there. There's there's been non-volatile DIMMs for a while using usually a combination of of DRAM and and uh, Flash NAND technology, um, but these use you know monolithically the 3D X-Point technology and act much closer to what a regular DRAM DIMM would, would be like as far as performance goes, certainly not quite at the level of latency and bandwidth that, that you might be able to get out of a, uh, a DRAM module, but something close enough to it that they can fit into a into a DIMM slot and work alongside regular volatile memory. Yeah, this is really the last puzzle piece we've been looking for in terms of completing the uh, uh, elastic storage market where we're now bringing storage all the way into a dim form factor and it really connects memory all the way out through the entire storage hierarchy out to tape and cloud where now we have different point products all the way through from actual memory, which you now have to think of as part of your storage hierarchy through NVMs, NVMEs, different implementations of flash, such as burst buffers, all the different speeds of spinning disk, nearline archive, cold archive, and cloud. All of these exist as part of a storage hierarchy now. And tiered storage, when we used to talk about it, you know, like, well, you have disk and you have tape. That was tiered storage. You really have a lot of different possible tiers of storage now. And this is another interesting piece in that puzzle. So the storage gets faster again, but it's also a little more expensive yet again. It's a little cheaper and not quite as high performance as memory. No one yet has had this silver bullet of something that's automatically faster and cheaper that obsoletes everything else. Um, everything fits on a spectrum here. And, and this is an important piece that we're bringing into the equation. Right, right. The, and the value proposition here is is you get uh, good sort of perform or capacity per byte uh, as far as price goes. So you can put a lot more uh, memory capacity into your memory slots um, using this technology, which which I think is sort of the most interesting use of Optane technology to date, because getting getting that capacity close to the processor, I, I think is something that a lot of applications are going to be able to use uh, 
very quickly and it's going to be very advantageous. You just think about things like in-memory databases or, or you know, any almost any kind of data analytics applications that tend to be memory bound in some way or I.O. bound. This is something at the right price point. It's going to make those those applications run a lot faster potentially and, and get sort of some overnight performance increases that you really couldn't attain with uh, PCIe attached uh, SSDs or other similar types of, of of products. This is something I think uh, potentially could make a big impact on a lot of different applications, just simply because there's uh, a lot of those workloads are memory bound or I/O bound in some way. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, I agree and disagree. You're right. There are applications like in-memory database, but remember, there's also things like true shared memory platforms, like we were just talking about, where HP has moved that SGI NUMA now into its Superdome line. So if you really have an SAP HANA in-memory database and you want to optimize that, are you going to be better off with an Intel Optane DIMM and something that's still technically a cluster architecture, or are you going to be better off with a, a single NUMA space and have everything in RAM? There are trade-offs, right? The, there are trade-offs in performance. There are trade-offs in price. And uh, and people are going to have to move the needle to where they they find the best bang for the buck for their particular applications. Right, and I think Intel would say that the advantage here is going to be the price. So you can have a NUMA architecture, but if you're if you're uh, uh, relegated to DRAM, that's going to cost a lot of money. If if you need that, if you need big memory space here, that memory presumably is going to be much cheaper. The memory capacity is going to be much cheaper. Now, Intel hasn't talked about pricing for these products yet, since they're not going to be generally available till next year. But if it goes along with their model that they've done with SSDs, it's going to be quite a bit cheaper than DRAM. So you're going to be able to get terabytes of capacity for for what you get uh, much less capacity on the on DRAM now. So that's going to be the the value proposition here. Yes, it's not going to be quite as performant, but uh, the increased capacity uh, they believe is going to is going to overshadow that, and that's going to be the the big uh, the big advantage here. Well, yeah, sure, I get it. But this is where you start talking out of both sides of your mouth at the same time. Because on the one hand, it's higher performance than things that are cheaper. And on the other hand, is it's cheaper than things that are higher performance, right? It's it's at a point on the spectrum, which is exactly the point. And this has been the, the trend, the direction that we've seen in high-performance storage, where the story for years in high-performance storage has been about having fast spinning disks and, and a high throughput put or high bandwidth way to scale that with things like parallel file systems. Now, as we've moved into things that are flash implemented, we've had conversations about burst buffers. And now we're having conversations about NVM as part of the storage hierarchy. And where we see this trend ultimately leading is that your discussion around high-performance storage is ultimately more about what tier your data is in at any given point in time, more than it's about how, how fast you talk to any individual tier, which is your, your parallel file system. I think the more important thing in the, in the medium term is do you have some kind of storage implementation that allows you to intelligently move data between your different tiers so it's on a hotter tier 
when you need it, and then it demotes to a colder tier when you don't need it. To me, that speaks less toward parallel file systems and more toward things like object storage, which haven't been um, so far uh, well adopted in HPC because they carry a little bit of overhead. But you know that's what you talk about when it's data at rest on a particular tier. Once you get data in motion between multiple tiers, object storage starts becoming a more efficient way to manage that data and how it moves between the tiers. So I would say don't be surprised if in the next couple of years you're really looking toward object implementations, no F, true NoFS object implementations as the, as the efficient high-performance way to manage storage. Yeah, it definitely sounds like the technology like this will, will help that along, certainly. I mean, in the short term, to, to manage this uh, this greater amount of persistent memory, if, if, you, if you should implement it, uh, Intel's provided some libraries to help you sort of optimize the use of, of this greater capacity persistent memory. I mean, you, the, the compatibility is already sort of built in with DDR4. The, that's going to be transparent, but to actually optimize the, the use of this as a hot data tier, I uh, have to do a little bit more to your application usually, you know, things like memory map files, managing allocations in persistent memory, that's going to be a little bit different than what you would normally think about for, for volatile DRAM. So they have some, some uh, software help in these open source libraries that, that they're going to provide. But yeah, the, the larger uh, software stack that's going to optimize this all the way through the, the memory and software uh, hierarchy, yeah, that's going to take some more work. But something like this, I think, uh, is going to be uh, a nice data point along that, that evolution. And it'll be interesting to see how this evolves over a longer period of time. We're going to keep tracking it, Michael, and we've got a lot of announcements heating up as we head toward ISC, so we'll yep. definitely be back next week. And that's what's been going on this week in HPC. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.